So welcome to this New Scientist-sponsored podcast, the first in a series exploring how the UK has transformed its ecosystem for clinical trials to make it a world-leading destination for a new era of medicine. My name is Justin Mullins, and this week I'm talking to a man who has played a key role in driving forward this transformation. Last year, he delivered a highly influential report on commercial clinical trials in the UK. We'll be talking about the impact of this report. He is a former health minister, a senior partner at the consultancy New Market Strategy and a member of the House of Lords, which is why the report is now known as the Lord O'Shaughnessy Review. James O'Shaughnessy, welcome. The UK has recently undergone a wide range of improvements in its clinical trials landscape, and these changes continue to feed through. We're going to get into all of those details in due course. But first, I want to set the scene by exploring why commercial clinical trials are so important to the UK. Why should we care? It's a great question. Ultimately, clinical trials of any kind matter because without research, there are no improvements in care. Commercial trials are particularly important, I think, for two reasons you might focus on. Firstly, industry-sponsored trials, often late-stage trials as they're known, involve bringing innovative medicines to hundreds if not thousands of people at the point at which, you, roughly speaking, you know they have some effect, but you're trying to measure that effect ahead of regulatory submissions and reimbursement and so on. So what it means is you get early access to medicines, most of which are going to work and have some benefit for you. So that is the first and most important thing. If you have fewer clinical trials, fewer people on clinical trials, you have less access to innovative medicine. The second point, which I think is also worth making, is that commercial trials bring new money into the UK, foreign direct investment. Most pharma companies and biotechs are obviously headquartered outside the UK. They're bringing trials here. And that means they're paying for the cost of medicine, they're paying for the cost of care. And in the review, we estimated that this is uh, worth hundreds of millions of pounds in additional funding if we were to double and then double again our clinical trial activity in the UK. Making the UK globally attractive is not just something the UK is interested in. It's a quite a competitive field, this, isn't it? It is a competitive field. And other countries have decided to go after this area and have done really well. Um, Australia is well known for being a high performer in early stage trials. Spain has dramatically increased its clinical trial activity in late phase trials. So what I take as encouragement for that is if you really set this as an ambition and you have a thoroughgoing approach to solving problems and, and introducing actions that are going to improve the environment, you can make uh, gains quite quickly. And actually, the good news is, since the report uh, was published, since the government accepted the recommendations of it, we have seen a significant increase in commercial trial activity already. How attractive does this make the United Kingdom for future trials? Another way to think about clinical trials, they're one part of a life science ecosystem. But they do have a sort of outsized importance, I think, because they, they act as a bit of a beacon, a canary in the mine, if you like, about the health of a life science ecosystem. If trials are hard to set up, if uh, it's difficult to find trial centres, difficult to recruit patient, patients and so on, that tends to suggest that things aren't working. Equally, if all those things are working, if trials are straightforward to set up, you can find sites and fill them quickly. That suggests that the system is working well which will then attract other investment in early stage R&D and manufacturing, drug launches and so on. So it's not the be all and end all, but it, as I said, it, it does speak to the health of, a, of an ecosystem. So let me set up a, a little timeline here. If you could cast your mind back 10 years or so, and the UK at that time was at the, uh, at the peak of its powers in the clinical trial landscape. And, and since then, it's been a, a rocky road to a certain extent, hasn't it? Yeah, it's a mixed picture. I think if you, you don't, 
instigate trials like uh, the reviews like the one that I did if things are going well right so everyone recognized that there were some structural problems as well as some more recent ones that are result of the pandemic so if you look at the data um, from 2017 onwards things started to get a bit more difficult trial commercial trial activity started to decline COVID came along and of course we did the UK did amazing world-leading work in clinical trials during the pandemic, whether that's recovery trial, the panoramic trial, the vaccine trials, and so on. But the cost of that was almost all other trial activity paused. And so we also tried to regain activity um, that was paused during the pandemic. So there's a sort of longer term structural issues, as well as this post pandemic reset. I think what was good was that everyone understood there was a problem or a set of problems. And during the course of the review, we engaged obviously with industry with clinical research organizations, the NHS, academia, patient groups, and everybody else, there was actually a lot of consensus about what needed to change. So it made my job easier um, because it was people were worried, but they also had a sense of what needed to be done. And one of the things that I could do was draw all that together. And what did you identify as the key challenges? The most important challenge and the most important indicator of the health of the clinical trials sector is how easy it is to set up a trial. If you're going to pick one thing, it's that. You can then sort of separate that into two elements. One is the regulatory approval process, how long it takes to get approved by the Health Research Authority, but also how long it takes to set up at local level. Both of those were slow. So if you looked at international benchmarks, the regulatory approvals were slow and it was difficult to get first patient in uh, to sites. Even though the sites were established, we were slow at recruiting. There's all sorts of reasons for that, which uh, we can get into, or people want to read the review, they can find it there. Uh, but ultimately, you needed to solve that problem. And I think by solving that problem, and there are some solutions underway and much better performance than there was six months ago. What was it that our competitors were doing that we weren't doing at this time? Because they were able to steal a march on us. It is multifactorial, but speed is a big part of it. So if you looked at um, uh, average times for clinical trials, uh, approvals and protocol amendments to go through the MHRA, they had ballooned away from where they were meant to be, 60-day turnaround. If you looked at setup times at uh, site level, at, you know, in NHS trusts and hospitals, those had also ballooned. Other countries had had a relentless focus on speeding up those times, and that is what companies need. They want to bring their products through the clinical trials process, through regulation reimbursement as quickly as possible, so that they get act they get access to patient groups, which is obviously good for patients, good for their businesses. The longer that takes, the less attractive it is. And it certainly has improved in the UK. What has been done to make this change? The MHRA, to its credit, understood this problem immediately. It was no surprise to them. They understood that their performance was not as it should be. They geared up um, by uh, applying extra capacity and expertise into their clinical trials approvals unit. They got through all their backlog by summer. Uh, they got through their protocol amendment backlog by the end of the year. And they are now performing at the level that they should have been, as they, they would accept they should have been. In addition, they have introduced new guidance that actually reduces the regulatory burden for less complex later stage trials. So they've become more nuanced, if you like, more sophisticated in the regulatory approach that they take. At the same time, NHS England and the other parts of the NHS in the United Kingdom, National Institute of Health Research and others, have also looked at the contract. This sort of slightly bureaucratic and techie, but of course, what you want to be is in a position where one site does all the due diligence and set up and bureaucracy that's needed to set up a trial, and that applies to every other site and it is accepted by them. That wasn't happening. 
you were getting a lot of second guessing, secondary due diligence. One site would do their thing, another site would do another. And of course, that just balloons the time it takes to set up. That's now been changed, something called costing and, and value review. It's comprehensive, it's uh, effectively mandatory, it's being used by all NHS organisations, which means you don't get that duplication. Combination of those two factors has meant there's been a very significant reduction in setup times, which as I said, is what sends a signal out to the world, we're in business. Can you give me a sense of the significance of the change of where we were six months or two years ago to what's happened now? It's been a very significant change, hasn't it? Yeah, the average setup times have reduced by over 30%, which is making us globally competitive again. I mean, performance had slid. And it's important, I think, to distinguish uh, in phase one and phase two trials, so early stage trials, the UK is still very high performing. If you look at global benchmarking, it was in phase 2B and phase 3, so later stage trials, that we had become dropped down the rankings from third or fourth to tenth place as a, as a place to do business. So that's where we were focused. That tends to be where a lot of the commercial activity is. It's where the big numbers are in terms of trial participants. So it's where, where you can really make the, the biggest difference in some ways. I think new benchmarking, global benchmarking figures haven't come out yet, but they should show, I hope, a significant uh, improvement. We also know there's an improvement because if you just look at the numbers, look at the numbers of patients who were enrolling on um, commercial trials in the UK, they have doubled, or in England at any rate, which is the data I've seen, they have doubled since the summer. So that tells you something's going well. What is it that allowed this change? That uh, Was it significant investment? Was it a change in the regulatory environment? What was the difference? I think we've been able to make a quick difference because everyone understood that it wasn't working. There wasn't resistance. There weren't people holding out saying, no, no, our performance is excellent. We really don't need to worry about it. Everyone understood that we needed to do better. It was as a, a case of bringing together those ideas for change, also about being ambitious. I talked in the review about having an ambition to double and then double again our clinical trials activity. Doubling would just got us back to where we were. Doubling again would take us into a truly world-leading position. And I was pleased to say that when the government did their full implementation review, response to the review in November 2023, in the foreword, the then Secretary of State adopted that ambition. So that is what they are aiming for, and it's what we're perfectly capable of delivering. So I think that was really important the fact that I do have this background in, as being a minister and know lots of the participants, I was able to get Treasury, Number 10, Business and Trade Department, uh, Science Department, Health Department together and, and align on that, I think was helpful. I, I was pushing against an open door. Everyone wanted to do better. Then it was, of course, having a, a thorough review and recommendations. And then, you know, the government's put its money where its mouth is. They have backed some of these, uh, the recommendations with, with over £120 million worth of, uh, of funding, which, of course, uh, helps. And, I mean, how quick has that been? There's been a very substantial change, hasn't there? Is this, is this an unprecedented change? With all these things, you have to keep up momentum. It's a competitive environment. Um, as we know, other countries have decided that they want clinical trials to be part of their USP, why you would go and, uh, and invest there. We don't want to lose out on those investments to competitive countries when this is work that we could do extremely well ourselves and would bring benefits to patients, UK PLC and so on. So things are moving in the right direction. But I think if there's a lesson that I take from this experience and my experiences in government, is you can't just assume that it will be fine now. It's fixed. It re requires consistent attention over time and to make sure that we continue to consider it to be a first order issue. And um, although I'm not involved in the review anymore, the implementation is up to those in government, making sure that people continue to be interested 
in it that we keep up the pressure and that we you know we realize what we're capable of is is part of my ongoing role key part of this story is the nhs which is part of the fabric of our society what is the significance of the NHS in, in clinical trials? The NHS is where the vast majority of clinical trials take place. You can't really operate trials without doctors and nurses who, who want to deliver them. Of course, they're incredibly busy. They've got to deliver their day-to-day frontline responsibilities as well as to catch up on some of the backlog um, post-pandemic. What we do know is that most doctors and nurses want to do more research. That's been um, discovered in surveys of, of the profession and so on. So it's about trying to find time, the right incentives, and so on. Now, I think real, you have to be realistic about what's possible. We can't just carve out 5 10% of people's um, working day to, to put on research that easily. We, uh, there is an intention, as, as the NHS has pointed out, to, to recruit more research-able um, clinicians and so on. But the review, which was trying to make a, a rapid impact, was much more focused on if you like, clearing away the bureaucratic undergrowth that got in the way of people who want to do research, but who, when faced with the prospect of having to do, you know, huge amounts of uh, of setup costs and uh, and the bureaucracy that attends to that, just said, "I can't do it. I haven't got time." If we can remove that, my hypothesis was doing the review, and I think hopefully that's been borne out, is that actually that would free time for people to do what they wanted to do, which they find rewarding which is to do more research. And fortunately, that looks like that's the case. We've had some fantastic results from things like the recovery trial, which have been non-commercial endeavours. How do you get people more focused on the commercial side of clinical trials? It's a really good question. And I think one of the things I was very conscious of because of the scope of my review was around commercial trials is what we can't do is just take the same amount of activity but reorient it towards commercial and reduce academic and NHS-sponsored trials. I mean, that that's just, we want to grow the pie, right? Not just redistribute it. So I was very conscious that we're very strong in that regard. And we don't, we want to make everything that the review recommends should make that work better, as well as making commercial trials um, improve. So I think it is about that. You've actually got increasingly more trials that are effectively co-sponsored by academia and industry. So the sort of old division between academic and industry is starting to dissolve. And our basic science sector is probably one of the strongest parts of the UK economy, working hand in glove with the NHS through our academic health science centres, you know, our big research hospitals and so on. So trying to create more opportunities, the right incentives for uh, those kind of collaborations was a big part of it. A part of that, I think, is being very clear about the financial benefits that will flow into NHS trusts. For most trusts, even the most research active ones, clinical research is a small part of what they do. They're not always aware exactly what they're doing at board level or the income that comes in. Whereas actually, I think being more transparent about that, having more reporting, it, it brings to the fore the extra income that comes in. And I, and I think we'll make institutions more hungry to do more of that kind of research because it will obviously in, ultimately improve the kind of care they can deliver. Do you have an emblematic example of the kind of commercial clinical trials trial that it would be good to aim at or hold up as an example for, for future trials? There are lots of commercial trials that you could do. Very large-scale trials for very common diseases, you know, heart disease and so on. Very small, precise, complex trials for um, cancer, rare cancers, where you need, you know, genomic sequencing and so on. And then there are completely different type of trials that you don't deliver in hospitals, you deliver through primary care. The truth is all of those 
and those are just a few archetypes, but all of those are interesting and valuable. Over time, trials are going to become more and more personalized because drugs will become more and more personalized. What I mean by that is before you get a medicine, you will have a molecular analysis of both yourself, your own genome, perhaps that if you've got cancer, you've got a tumor, and that will inform your suitability for a certain medicine or a medicine, you know, whether it's on the market or, or through a trial. We have incredible strengths in that field. The 100,000 Genomes Program, um, world-leading genomic sequencing program. Over time, because industry will move in that direction and that matches our strengths, we should be focusing in that kind of area. That's not to say we shouldn't be doing other trials, of course, you know, large-scale trials in respiratory disease or, 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 or cardiovascular disease and so on will continue to be really important. Medicine will become more personalised. And, and we have a lot of the strengths that can do that, uh, that can contribute to that. Um, one of those is our access to NHS data, which is a, a whole different uh, area that we might get into, but uh, it's a real strength for the UK. Well, let's get into it. The, how, how much of a strength is it and, and in what sense compared to our competitors? So what makes the NHS unusual, as we all know, is that it's free at the point of use. And that means that the data that is coded on electronic health records isn't usually for reimbursement or billing, which it would be in, say, a private healthcare system or even social insurance systems like the ones in Europe, but is capturing pure data about a person's health and, or illness. And what that means is it's sort of qualitatively different and richer than many other data sets that health systems around the world hold about people. And we have a single NHS number. And although the NHS isn't one thing, it's hundreds of things, trusts and GPs and all the rest of it, it all works to the same number. And ultimately, all the data that the NHS holds about a person can, in theory, not always in practice, can in theory, be resolved and presented around them in a single care record over time, over a lifetime. We don't capture all this data electronically at the moment. We have done in primary care for 20 years. We are getting there in secondary care. Some places are totally digitized, others still use paper most of the time but we are getting there but what that means is in theory you should have this incredibly rich 67 million data set of people that covers their lifespan is recording their health and illness rather than you know whether they should be billed for something or other and then you add sort of other aspects and genomic data which we're increasingly capturing of people uh, and of course we have a heterogeneous population it's not just one ethnic group we have multiple ethnic groups every sort of kind of genome that you might find in any ethnicity around the world you can find in the UK. So all those factors mean our data, if we can make it available to researchers in a way that the public trusts, which is a a big health factor, you know, with all of this, means that we should be in pole position in terms of using that data for trials and research. And part of all this is embracing new digital technologies, isn't yeah. it? How is that playing into all of this? Well, you, you can think of it in two ways, one of which is new types of data. So wearables, for example, really, there's lots of really exciting work about that. Instead of you know, typically with clinical trials, you're often collecting data, patient recorded outcome measures. That used to be literally a kind of clipboard. How are you feeling today on a scale of one to 10? Well, we can actually substantiate that now, follow people's heart rate, their breathing, um, how much sleep they're getting, temperature, you know, all these kind of things. So there are new forms of data that we can capture about people that provide a richer sense of how they're responding to treatments. I think the other is the use of sophisticated software like AI to look for the kind of patients that would be suitable for trials to 
follow them through those trials and then to interpret the results from them. So I mean, that's only one application of AI in this space, but there are technologies that are going to mean that we are able to do much more sophisticated trials and get a much better understanding about how treatments are affecting people. And this is part of the thing you mentioned earlier on in recruiting patients. The ability to do this digitally and remotely is also important, isn't it? Really important, because if there's one thing that we need for clinical trials to expand is we need more people to want to be on them. <laughs> and we need to make it easier for them to be on them. A phrase I use, which doesn't always go very down very well with clinicians, is uh, we need to create more demanding patients. They probably think sometimes their patients are demanding enough. But what I mean by that is if you're going into a care setting, you should be able to find out uh, for your condition, your disease, whatever it is, what research is available, and to be willing to say to your, you know, your doctor, I want to be part. I've I've heard that there might be some research. Can you point me in that direction? Can you recommend me? Am I suitable? Now that's a sort of dream state that we're all all those kind of demanding uh, patients in that way. In the meantime, actually, digital health technologies can help it make it a lot easier to participate. So you, you know, for a good example would be being able to take diagnostic tests uh, in your home rather than having to visit hospitals. If we want to get to remote communities, if we want to get to communities who don't usually take part in research, who might not want to go to a hospital for whatever reasons, we need to be able to bring the technology that enables participation to them. And one of the things I'm really excited about in this space is that I think clinical trials can help address the health inequalities that we have. Because if you think about it, the illest people are usually the ones who are most disengaged, not just from the health system, but from all sorts of parts of society. But because they are the illest, they are also the most of interest to people who are developing drugs that can help them and will show the greatest benefits. So there's a kind of virtuous circle to be joined up there, which clinical trials can enable. The, we've covered a lot of ground here, and I just want to take a slightly different perspective, which, or ask you to take a slightly different perspective, of a global life sciences company who have lots of different choices for where they're going to look at putting their next clinical trial. What are the most important factors for them in the things that we've discussed? How do we attract them to Britain and the UK? The calling card is, is speed. So, so the things that you know you're going to get with the UK, you know you're going to get um, some of the world's um, leading clinicians who will be involved in your trials as, as investigators and so on. That's a given. Access to our science base, English as a first language, robust data that's regulatory grade. So there's lots of things they know what they will get. And, and my experience has been life sciences companies, will, I, more often than not, they'll want the UK to be part of their roster. The question is whether, okay, we've allocated some trial participants to the UK. Is the UK actually going to recruit them? Are we going to be able to set up in time? Are we going to be able to recruit patients in the UK before we've actually filled our numbers through other markets that move more quickly? So I, my understanding is, and you know, again, not complacent, but belief is that the UK continues to be attractive for, for those kind of core strengths. But if, we, if we're not fast and nimble, then inevitably the numbers will be recruited elsewhere. So, so speed really, really matters. They're not secondary factors, but there are other factors which probably not quite as significant in decision making, like um, cost and so on. But again, if the regulatory data, if the data you're getting is of such high quality that you know regulators will rely on it, which typically is what the UK would provide, then you know you might be able or willing to pay a premium. Access to that additional data is really important. And then I think there's a there's sort of downstream issues around. Um, uh, reimbursement and, and making sure that your drug will be taken up here and, uh, and, and reimbursed through 
um, those kind of agencies. Um, but but in, when it comes to trials, you want to know that if you commit to a country, you'll be able to recruit your numbers. You mentioned earlier about the data environment and having the public trust to go forward with this. Do we have the right kind of data and privacy environment to enable uh, all of this for the future? Generally speaking, we do, in the sense that I think the legal framework, the, the Data Protection Act, common law, duty of confidentiality, and so on, the fact that patients can opt out of their personal information being used for, for research purposes and so on, that is all there. But that's the sort of formal side of it. The informal side is that, understandably, people care about how their data is used. Some of it is highly sensitive. So they want to know it's not just secure, but it's going to be used for ethical purposes. And they also want to know that how it's being used aligns with the values of the NHS, which I think is incredibly important. Sort of soft, if you like, element to all of this. Where countries go wrong, and the UK has had this experience in the data realm, is that they they don't engage the public early enough in conversations about how data can be used to improve research and that research is necessary to improve care. Now, what COVID did is it kind of brought all that to the fore. And actually, all sorts of data sharing and usage was going on to help deliver the trials, find out what therapies work, do vaccines and all the rest of it. People were, 99.9% of people were completely happy for that to happen. Now we're in sort of, hopefully, post-pandemic period, you, you can't assume that that sort of level of understanding and interest will continue. You have to continually engage them in it and you have to justify it. It's necessary because we have health urgencies or emergencies that mean we've got to use data to improve it. And of course, it's not just data for you know academics in the NHS. It also involves companies and we have rules for how to do that and the NHS will benefit. All of this is reasonable and explainable, but you can't assume that people automatically believe it. And so in the review, one of the things I talked about was the importance of part, what, you know, participatory processes that they call things, citizens, juries, however you want to think of them. But they're, they're kind of sophisticated conversations between the NHS researchers and the public to understand what the, the kind of guide rails are that people should operate in. And these are happening actually all the time all over the country. And if you, if you look at them and take part in them or observe them as I've done, people had come up with incredibly reasonable and sensible approach. There's certain things they think that data should never be used for. Absolutely right. This is a real strength of ours. And as long as it is being put in the service of developing innovations that are going to improve patients' lives and that the companies, if it involves companies doing that, are going to focus on the UK and launch their products here. And, you know, if the NHS is a partner, can they get some royalties or discounts? They're all for it. In fact, they want it to happen. My point is you can't just assume it. You've got to keep working with it. And not just kind of, we've decided what we're going to do. We're now going to ask you if that's okay. You've got to involve them from the beginning. Um, it takes a bit of effort. And of course, sometimes you might get bits of answer you don't like, but it's 100% the right thing to do. We're coming to the end of our podcast. So what I want to do is just look to the future. I'm going to ask you to paint a picture of how things are going to change in the next couple of years, because the one thing that we have learned is that you cannot stand still. We have to be ahead of the game. How are we going to do that over the next few years? For a variety of reasons, the cost of clinical trials has been increasing, which is an, and that's global, that's not a, a UK uh, issue. And of course, the problem there is that effectively creates an additional barrier to a medicine getting to market. And we want the opposite of that, right? We want things to be safe and efficacious, but we want to reduce the cost and bureaucratic barriers to bringing drugs to market. So one of the things I'm really excited about 
is, of course, you know, you need tend to think about clinical trials. You sort of think about people in lab coats and in in, in labs and uh, all of that kind of stuff. But actually, some of the most interesting work is happening in what's called the decentralized trial space. So that idea of bringing trials out to people, radically reducing the cost of operating those trials using data uh, that's collected from people locally without having to come into institutions and so on, but doing it to the same level of compliance and, and, and regulatory quality as would traditionally happen. So the beauty of that is if you can radically reduce the impact, and there are, there's a great success, UK success story called Protest, which was set up by Sir Martin Landry, who ran a recovery trial, and they have a model which promotes decentralized trials of that kind, so doing big, large-scale trials which knocks tens and tens of percentages off the cost of doing those kind of trials. Well, that just means that we will have better access to medicines as a consequence of that. So you'll start to see that spread. Now, as I said, that that's not the be-all and end-all. At the Right at the other end, you've got more sophisticated trials using genomic data and other things, and we'll have that too, and that's going to be a strength of ours. But I'm really attracted by the idea that it just becomes a more normal part of care, that care should be research and research should be care and this is going to feed into public health not just in the uk but beyond absolutely as you know as we showed in covid the uk per capita did more clinical trials uh, and research than any other country in the world and the consequence of our scientific strengths and our trial strengths meant that we were able to directly contribute to saving of thousands tens of thousands of lives it's a pretty amazing thing but we need to rediscover that energy, that mission in a post-pandemic world where we're not just focusing on one disease, but we're focusing on the whole range of disease. And it's not like we're short of candidates. You know, just in the UK alone, 200, 250,000 people die of cancer every year. So we've got our health emergencies, as does every country. And But we need to kind of recapture that spirit that we had in COVID. But as I say, not, not, not to the exclusion of everything else. James O'Shaughnessy, that was fascinating. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. Join us for our next episode when we will be talking to another central figure in this story. This podcast was sponsored by the UK Department for Business and Trade and the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency.